And then you decide, oh, do I want to live with these people, like close to these people? Do I want these people to be like my neighbors? So it's like the reverse. It's like you meet the neighbors, then you buy the house, not the other way around. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on Lauren Tang, who's going to talk to us about co-housing. But before that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody, I know this is something uh, you can't relate to, but I'm in a new location this week because I just moved into my new house. And I'm actually recording this live from a back patio of one of these crazy, like, giant bar establishments. I'm very bullish on this part of Austin. They're just moving in these giant places that are like bars, coffee shops, big patios, outdoor volleyball, you know, live music, which I love. I think I have like seven places within a very short walk that is a, that has live music shows. I'm pumped about that. But yeah, this weekend sucked because it was all moving. How about you? Well, Justin, quite the contraire on the moving piece, because I am recording this from Athens, Greece. Just flew in yesterday. We had quite the day of traveling, but we're finally getting to make this trip happen. Me and my girlfriend, Lauren, had planned this back in March of 2020. We were going to visit James and Emily Lowry from episode 36, who had retired and moved to Cyprus, but COVID had other plans, but we finally made it back over here. We're doing kind of an island tour, which will you know update you week by week. But as of right now, we're in Athens. We did a bunch of the sightseeing today. We went to the Acropolis. We went to a lot of the other historical ruins. It's been a ton of fun, and I'm excited for the next couple of weeks getting to check out the rest of the country. But Justin, that's enough about our personal updates. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote-unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. Alrighty, so like I mentioned quickly at the beginning, today we have on Lauren Tang, who is going to talk about co-housing, but that's not where Lauren's story started. She grew up super impoverished, and that kind of shaped her whole money mindset. She talks about how she grew up, how she ended up in the medical field. Then we get into talking about what co-housing is, how she got introduced to the co-housing community, the co-housing project that she's working on with a bunch of other people in the Northwestern United States, and a bunch of other cool stuff just surrounding this idea of co-housing and all of the shareability and all the different capabilities you have when you have this intentional living space that you're building with all these people that are so like-minded. Yeah, Cody, and if listeners are interested in learning more about co-housing and just this way to build an organic community of like-minded people in a physical sense where you literally have built your own little neighborhood, you can do all that at thefyshow.com slash Lauren. That's thefyshow.com slash L-A-U-R-E-N. 
I guess I learned about money from my immigrant parents. You know, like a lot of first generation Americans, um, when your parents come from a background uh, where they had to work really hard for money, had a really hard life, um, had to move to a new country, uh, started a new life, you learn about money pretty quickly because it, it's like the fabric of how your family works. And so that's how I started. But honestly, I think it wasn't until the FI community that I really um, collate what I learned at home to how I'm going to conduct my life financially in terms of what that money means, what my professional life uh, should be used for, uh, purpose, and how money can fit into purpose. And so I think that's how we bonded because uh, we all wanted a life where you know, we weren't tied to our money and tied to our jobs. So one thing we love doing, I think maybe even a little more so than other podcasts is really trying to like think about that kind of those early years. And and so you mentioned your parents and them kind of immigrating. Were you born in the United States? Did you, were, were things still tight when you were growing up? Do you remember that? Or is it just kind of like historical for them and, and that kind of impacted you? I don't think for immigrant parents, it's ever historical. I think <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, on a day-to-day basis, I remember my first memory was living in a trailer, you know, as like a young kid because my parents didn't have the money. So we were eight kids in the family and we lived in a trailer and I didn't really have a bedroom or anything. I mean, there was really only two, three rooms, including the bathroom in a trailer. And there were like eight adults, um, you know, there were like a bunch of kids And so, you know, luckily my first memories were very sparse because I was really young when we were living in a trailer. But I remember, you know, going to school, um, you know, catching the bus from the trailer park. So, yeah, I mean, I think when you grow up that way, money is like, you know, an an everyday thing. Like your mom is saying, well, we can't afford the groceries uh, this way. We have to buy like the discount groceries because, we really need to save some money because there's a lot of people living in like 600 square feet and we need a house. So by the time I was um, like eight or nine, we were in a real house. And that's my first memory of like having real space and living like other people in this country. But before that, yeah, I mean, money was really tight. And um, I think those formative years I I still remember it till today. I don't think I'll ever be in the danger of living in a trailer again, but I remember what it's like to grow up in a trailer. And then going into the medical field, was that a decision that your parents had kind of made for you and pushed you in that direction? Were you just enamored with helping people or was it a money thing? It's definitely not a money thing. I think when you're a little kid, I mean, you guys remember college, right? Freshman year, they ask you, what are you going to be? What's your major? And like 80% of the kids are going to say pre-med, right? Because pre-med is like the biggest major that you could sort of say. And people are like, oh, you kind of know what directions your life are going to be in, but not really. Um, You're just kind of buying time, trying to figure it out. And um, you can be an English major and still be pre-med. You can be an engineer major and still be pre-med. So that's what I was. Um, I wouldn't say my parents were like the tiger moms, you know, or the tiger dads situations. I think my parents were a little bit more mellow than that. I was the youngest in the family of 11 kids. So by the time I came along, they were frankly just exhausted. And so they didn't care that much at that point what I wanted to be. Um, They just said, hey, listen, just try to do something. 
And so I was pre-med. I think it's a lot of it's just aptitude. Um, I don't think we talk about this enough, but like, if you ask me, you know, can you paint me a picture? I can't do that for my life, but I could probably do pretty good on a science test. And that's just kind of a natural aptitude. And we don't talk about that enough because we think, well, we can steer kids and we just, you know, if they study hard enough, they'll be a doctor or they'll be a lawyer. And I don't know that we talk a lot about like just natural inclination. And I think for me, it was just a natural inclination for science. And so that's how I ended up going to medical school, kind of fell into it. You know, people have to study and I just didn't have to study that much about it. Now, if you ask me to dance, I would look like a fool, but some people have, you know, a natural ability to dance and that's just not my sort of form of intelligence. So my form of intelligence just happens to be in the sciences. And kind of walking through, you know, like from coming from the background that you came from and going into pre-med, just going to college in general, was that like a really nervous situation where you kind of like a first time person in the family going to college? Or did you have somebody that you could kind of mirror off of? Like, I'm just kind of like, I remember back to when I was trying to figure out where am I going to live? Like, what classes am I going to take? Like, how do you get books? Because no one in my family had ever been to college. So I'm just curious, like, what was going through your mind like that freshman year? I remember, Justin, you talking about you being the first person in your family going to college, and that's really inspiring. Luckily, I was not uh, having to have that experience because I have um, 11 brothers and sisters, and nine of them have gone to college, and uh, one of them has have even gone to medical school. So I, you know, I had the opposite experience. You know, every step of the way, whether it's middle school or high school or college, I had like this you know, bunch of nerds that went ahead of me. And so the teachers would be like, oh, you're one of the Tang children. (laughs) Oh, yes, your sister's great in this class. And then, you know, I had that, you know, pressure. So I was just trying to not let them down and and, uh, try not, again, not to look like a fool. So, you know, I did my homework because that's what the Tang children's do. They do their homework. So I want to fast forward to when you start making real money because, you know, it's a long and arduous process, but at some point, most doctors are making in the low six figures or sometimes in the mid six figures. What did it feel like? And what did you do when you started seeing that type of money come in? Honestly, it, it's a very long road. So if anyone's listening to this and saying, well, you know, you can go to medical school and you come out and, you know, they offer you two to $300,000 a year. In salary, just so you know that to get to there, you're going to be in your 30s. You're at least 30 years old by that time. So by that time, you have a ton of uh, student loans. Probably you haven't made any money. You've worked really hard. You've been getting up at like 4 a.m. every day to go to the hospital and round. You've been spending a lot of time on the bottom of the ladder. Everyone orders you around. Um, so by the time you kind of become an attending, um, and I became an attending around 29 or 30 years old, and yes, you do get like that big contract, and suddenly you do get this huge amount of money deposited into your checking account. You know, I think it's it's a very disconcerting feeling because you kind of go from, you know, I still drive my mom to the grocery store, and she won't buy like the three dollar tomatoes. Like she'll buy like the dollar fifty tomatoes, and so I still have that like frugal mentality. I still have that like I could go back and live in a trailer at any point. So I probably shouldn't buy the six dollar blueberries. I mean, to this day, I can't buy six dollar blueberries, guys. I just can't. 
I'm sorry. I went to the grocery store with a friend of mine and she's like, can you afford $6? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, what's the problem? And I'm like, I just can't do it. Like blueberries should be $3. And so it's, it's, um, yeah, it's that mindset. I don't know that it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's a prison, but it's definitely something that we all need to work through. I feel like I, I feel like a lot of my friends in the fire and fire community have a lot of money, have a lot of savings, but there are still certain things that are mental blocks for us. And that comes from our childhood. And whether it's like, you know, buying a half a million dollar house or $6 blueberries, it kind of, it, it's, it goes back to our experiences. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually listening to the, the psychology of money right now, the audio book. And I mean, he talks about how our financial experience is probably like 0. 0.0000, keep going 1% of the financial like experience and knowledge in the world, yet it accounts for like 80% of the way we see the world financially. Like that background that you have completely changes the way like you choose to invest, your risk tolerance, like what it feels like to see those $6 blueberries. Is there any moments in life where you can kind of think to where you were able to overcome one of those mental blocks? You're sitting there and you're saying, ah, you know, Lauren five years ago would have never bought this, but I'm going to treat myself. Well, I mean, that's kind of the topic of this podcast, right? Co-housing, because I just wrote a check for a few hundred thousand dollars for a cottage that hasn't been built yet. And I'm going in with a few friends and it's going to be, we have a track of land out in Washington and it's going to be a $12 million project. And we sit there and talk all the time about how, are we serious? Are we like hiring this developer right now? Are we hiring this contractor right now? Are we buying this five acres? Are we actually looking at $12 million in investment right now? Because certainly we're kind of similar minded, you know, well, um, well, we're not $6 blueberries people. And so for us, like, this is a lot of money, but it's a different mindset. So I think that's probably, uh, this is probably the first time in my life where I'm choosing quality of life and intentionality ahead of money. Um, it's more important to me to build community. It's more important to me to be sustainable, to intentionally build the next chapter of my life. It's more important than $6 blueberries. That's worth it. So it's it's funny that I won't spend $6 on a pint of blueberries, but I will sign a check for a few hundred thousand dollars. It's a weird dichotomy there. I actually don't think it's weird at all. Like I completely get where you're coming from. And I think I run to that a lot myself, but it's, it's because like what you could tell, like you were passionate about this cottage. You're not passionate about blueberries. It doesn't like make a difference in your day. You're like, I can eat whatever's on sale or, or strawberries on sale. That's totally fine. It's a berry. I don't care. Like, I think that is like the, the centerpiece of all this financial independence talk. It's like figuring out what actually moves you focusing on it. Because like you were saying, you know, we all have these mental blocks. Some people are spending too much money on an area. Some people aren't spending enough money on a certain area if it really matters to them. Yeah. And I think that's the trap of FI a little bit. I think in the beginning of my journey, I saw a lot of posts about, you know, how to make your toilet paper last longer or like how to, you know, eat um, processed meat because it's cheaper or something like that, because the the goal is to save as much money as possible. At some point in your FI journey, that's not going to be the goal anymore. And I just want people to know that there's a lot of 
stages to this journey. And a lot of us that's been there from the beginning, and I haven't caught up with Cody in a while, but we kind of began our journey in the same at the same spot. I mean, he was a lot younger. He is a lot younger, um, but that was five or six years ago. And I know that my focus now is very different from who I was five or six years ago. And I bet that Cody has probably had a similar kind of financial transformation too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have definitely, I wouldn't say like got lifestyle inflation, but I've definitely upped my lifestyle from where I was a couple of years ago. Like I was doing the crazy hacks to save as much money as humanly possible and living on like less than a thousand dollars a month. But now that I'm actually making money, saving money, investing, doing all this stuff, I've definitely started to spend more in the areas that I care about. I do want to just for the people who are unfamiliar with the term, Lauren, you mentioned co-housing and we'll be talking about that in this episode today. Could you just give us a definition? Like what is co-housing? So co-housing, a lot of similar terms that people use are intentional living or intentional communities, which means that, you know, uh, people are actually building physical structures or, or multiple physical structures designed around a common fair community mindset. So generally, it means that a community is built around a common house, which is a shared structure where people, neighbors, friends, Um, can spend time and choose in which way they want to share their resources, whether it's physical resources like a lawnmower or a tractor versus like intellectual resources like education, classes, workshops, things like that, uh, and and how we actually spend our time together. So each co-housing community decides what how the community kind of operates. So some community have, you know, like a meal every night together and others might have a meal every other night or others in ours, we're going to have uh, a meal every three nights together. So each community sort of design its own policies or operations. But generally the idea is that we live as sort of like a large shared intentional space. I mean, I think it's a a brilliant idea. I think that our entire economy is moving to more of a shared model, whether it be Ubers, whether it be Airbnb. I mean, you could even say as much about, to some degree, like cloud infrastructure. And so I don't want to take this the wrong way at all, because I think it's brilliant. But do you ever, do you meet people or do you have fears about people thinking like, this sounds like we might be creating a cult from something like Waco, where everybody's, you know, moving in together and things start to get weird. And, oh, can you leave the co-housing community if you want to, you know? Yeah, it sounds like a commune or something like that a little bit if you're not familiar with it. The difference between a commune or a cult and co-housing is that everyone owns their own home. So it's the same home structure. So, for example, in our community, we're plan- planning to build 30 cottages. So each each family owns their cottage and the, they own the land underneath their cottage. They also own parts of the shared spaces like the gardens, the orchards, Um, the pathways, the common house, all of these things. Um, So there's still private ownership and there's private spaces. uh, And then you just choose how you want to share or spend your time with the rest 
of the community. If you don't want to, you can go into your house and shut the door and never comes out. And that's totally fine too. Although if that's kind of what you want, you probably don't want to join us because we're actually, we actually like spending time together. We actually are going on a pretty extensive vacation next month for two weeks together. So obviously we really, really like spending time together, even though we don't have our cottages built yet. Um, because part of the co-housing is not just the land and the buildings. Uh, a major part of it is the community that you want to live with other people. You want to spend time with other people. And this is clearly a collaborative effort. You've used we a couple times there. You know, how did you get introduced to this and how did you get started? I mean, this is idealizing about living with a bunch of cool people. It's, you know, for a lot of people, it's just kind of daydreaming, but actually taking these steps to do it and you know, building a multi-million dollar development, that's a whole nother ordeal. Yeah, Cody, it is. It's a huge deal. <laughs> uh, most co-housing community actually is in the planning phase for about five to 10 years. That's a long time. So most communities from the time that it is a glimmer in someone's mind, like the idea that, oh, I want to live in a shared space. I want to build an intentional community. How do I do that? From that spot to we've got houses to move into, we're going to outfit our kitchen, buy plates, uh, cook the dinners. That's 10 years if you're lucky. So yeah, it's a huge, huge undertaking, which is why it's not, I guess, as proliferative as it could have been or it could be. Um, there's still, there are still very few communities that are running right now. There are a few that have been going on for 10 to 15 or 20 years, but generally it takes a lot. So for our community, uh, we have the founders who are Jenny and Dean, and they're this couple, when they started thinking about it, they were in their 50s. And they were thinking, you know what, we have like 30, 40 years in retirement and our friends and families are kind of all scattered as, you know, that's how I feel too. I feel like my friends and family are pretty scattered around the country. And they uh, heard about the idea of co-housing and that began their journey. They're about five years in. I'm about one year in. So I met them four years into their journey. At that point, they have already identified the track of land in Washington, it's about 30 miles northwest of Seattle. It's actually quite difficult to find land that's big enough to kind of accommodate a size or a group like this. Uh, so buying the land is probably the biggest step, especially in the Pacific Northwest, which is where we all want to live. So by that point, they had identified the land and um, was already in the process of purchasing the land. And so that's how the community kind of really took off because once you have the land, you can actually start to have some concrete ideas about what can go on the land, how you can live, how many people can be in the community, how you can build it, you know, some, some really concrete plans besides just kind of like this idea in your head. So land is cheap and easy to come by from where I'm from in Mississippi, but let's say I don't want to have to build a commune in Mississippi and I'm interested in the one you guys got going on or all 30 of these cottages already spoken for? Are there thoughts about like what happens if you want to expand the footprint of the cottage? So um, right now we're in the process of recruiting members. Um, we have about a third of the cottages have been sold. There are about 20 people on the waiting list to see if they can buy the rest of the cottages. 
the issue is that we just um, engage our developer and contractor and they need a little bit of time to give us some concrete numbers as to how much each cottage is going to cost. So until we have those concrete numbers, we don't want to recruit any more members because we want people to know how much it's actually ultimately going to cost them to, to come and live in our community. You know, we have people that are calling and saying, yes, I'm ready to sell my house and move to Washington. And we're like, please, no, don't do that just yet. <laughs> um, let, us get, let us get you some real numbers. Let us get you some idea about timeline. We think that we're probably going to be breaking ground in about six months. And so uh, we want to make sure that people understand, you know, in terms of their financial investment and how these cottages are going to be built, what they're going to look like, what their footprint is. There's going to be three models. There's a, six, a one bedroom, a two bedrooms, and a three bedroom floor plan. And we do have an architect that's been working with us for about six months. So a lot of those floor plans have been ironed out. People can take a look at those floor plans before they make any sort of commitment. And that's kind of the, the thing about co-housing is that we're not realtors and we're not trying to buy or sell you, you know, real estate. We're not interested. We're not making a profit. There's nothing of that sort. We actually just want really good community members. We want that to be a good fit for you and a good fit for us. And so a lot of times we'll say no when it's not a good fit, whether it's, you know, it doesn't sound like you would fit very well in the community or that the community fits very well for you. And when that happens, we kind of you know, let people know that, yeah, we're here for you. Please look around. You know, there is a community out there if that's ours is not the right one for you. But we're really just trying to like find good neighbors, improve all of our quality of lives and, you know, have people be really happy to live in what we're trying to build. I'm curious from like a management standpoint, how the whole community operates. Is it like a condo association where there's like an HOA for, I know you mentioned the kind of that central house. You obviously have landscaping, communal things that are used by everyone. I think it's, it's kind of a hybrid. So it, by nature, it has to be some sort of like a condo association, like an association kind of situation. So you share the cost. Every member knows what the costs are. You vote for you know, whatever it is that you want to buy or whatever it is that you want to install, all the features that are in the community. Co-housing is specific in that they use a model called sociocracy to rule or to create consensus. So believe it or not, the goal is to get 100% consensus uh, for any decision, which sounds really tough. I'm like, what? I don't know that I've ever been in a group where everyone agrees on, you know, everything 100% of the time. So it sounds like a really high bar. And we're all learning. So every member of the community has to learn about how to operate in the community as an individual member, but also how to collaborate with your neighbors. And so far, I mean, our group's been together. Uh, at least I've been with the group for about a year. Most of the members have been there for three to four years at least. And so far, we haven't disagreed on anything. And the, the governing piece was something that's like really fascinating to me, like trying to understand. I'm curious, you know, let's say you're you're living in one of the cottages, but you're somebody who doesn't necessarily want to live in one location year round. Like, are you allowed to make use of it 
are you allowed to, you know, could you rent that out as an Airbnb to other like-minded folks? Would they need approval on who could come stay? Would, if they got ready to sell it, you know, does the group get like first right of refusal, those kind of things? Yeah. So those are all going to be something that we have to iron out in our own policy, just like any condo association, it's going to be like all of that stuff, all the nitty gritty details, like, can you own dogs? Yes, you can. What kind of breeds of dogs? Can you own it? aggressive dogs. How many dogs can you have? Obviously, if you're living in 900 square feet, it's probably not healthy to own 20 dogs. Do we need a <laughs> policy for that? So all of these things. Um, it's interesting because I think it's a little bit different in the sense that, I mean, I live in a condo now and I have been living in my condo for 11 years. I know exactly one neighbor and I never talk to my neighbors about any of the policies that we have in operation at our condo. Um, it's just kind of like, that's just the rules. So if people who don't know each other, don't have a relationship, can live peacefully, it's even better with co-housing, I feel like, because these are my friends. And we can actually sit down and say, hey, what do you think about the pet policy? Do you think that's reasonable? How can we come to a consensus? So that's how we have made decisions thus far. And we've made some really big decisions like you know, how many cottages to have, where the gardens are going to be, where the orchards are going to be, what access roads, how much things are going to cost, how big are the cottages? I mean, these really major decisions, who's going to be our developers? How much are we going to pay them? Those things. And we've made these really major decisions with really no conflict. Because again, we are working on building our relationships with each other and creating a really strong fabric for our community, which is why when we're not in our cottages, you know, we're vacationing together. We're renting an Airbnb. I actually just finished uh, booking an Airbnb for us for next month because, again, we really enjoy spending time together, even if it's not about planning about co-housing. It's just because we're friends. So it's hard for me to kind of completely understand the scope of all the community parts of it. Not, I don't mean from like a relationship, but I'm in the physical, you know, you mentioned an orchard, you mentioned gardens. I know the prices aren't ironed out, but is there kind of a ballpark you could talk about price-wise? I would say that generally the prices for the cottage is commensurate with the prices for the real estate in the area. So if you were moving to the Pacific Northwest in a suburb of Seattle, you would expect a certain um, price range. And our price range is the same or maybe a little bit better. And um, we're just going to be new construction and we're going to be building like, you know, a model home. So in terms of a one bedroom in the Pacific Northwest, you can probably expect somewhere around $300,000. For three bedrooms, it probably go up to about four hundred, maybe four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And the footprint of the cottages are going to be a bit smaller than just you know your regular suburban home, and because one of the tenants of co-housing or something that uh, is part of our values is sustainability and environmental consciousness and preservation. And so we don't want to live in a very big footprint. We want to live in smaller footprints. So these homes are going to be between 900 square feet and about 1,200 square feet. But it sounds like you're not having to give up a lot price-wise in order to get these extra amenities, like the things, like the, the shared things. Like you mentioned an orchard, a garden, like you move into a, a house, like you said, that had a similar price. You're not going to get those things. 
Yeah, but you probably are going to give up, you know, if your intention is to live in a 3000 square foot, like massive suburban home, we're not, we're not that. And we're not going to have the three car garage. We're not that. So there are certain things that we're not. There are co-housing communities that do do that though. And so I, I just want to let people know that if if this model is something that you like, you want to live in community, but you do want that 4,000 square foot home and 20 dogs, like that exists. It's just, uh, you just have to find the, the right fit for you. I'm just thinking of all the benefits when it comes to, you know, sharing physical and educational things. Like now not every single person has to have their own snowblower or their own generator or whatever, like everyone can kind of share stuff. And, you know, maybe someone knows a ton about plumbing. Someone else knows a lot about online courses. You have someone like you or someone gets hurt. Maybe someone actually can diagnose the injury and see what's wrong with the person. There's just so many different benefits to having, you know, and also just having a bunch of cool people that you can walk over to their house and have dinner and play games and hang out and talk. Like, yeah, it just seems like an awesome idea. I'm surprised that there's not more people I know that have kind of taken to this co-housing thing. Well, that's funny, Cody, because like, I think the FI community is a great fit for co-housing. And I actually learned about co-housing in a FI camp. So I don't know if you remember, I don't think you were there that year, but there was a person that came in and he was doing a co-housing community in Florida, in Jacksonville, I believed. And he was talking to us about like how they governed themselves, how they were getting, you know, the physical structures built and all of that. And I'm sitting here in the audience thinking, what's co-housing, you know, and that was five or six years ago. Now, at the time, like most young professionals, I didn't really have like a huge leeway in terms of deciding where I'm going to live because you know, if you think about the life cycle of a young person, you're born and you live where your parents live. You don't really have a decision in that. And then you go to school and while well, you live in dorms or whatever, that's just where you live. And then you get out and you look for a job, right? And you choose the job. Yes, partly for where it is, but also like, is it the appropriate job? Is it as appropriate for your experience? Is it appropriate in terms of salary and things like that? So I was going through all the stages that a young person would be going through. And I didn't really have a chance to say, well, where do I want to live? Who do I want to live with? How is my day-to-day going to be? Who am I going to have dinner with three times a week? You know, all of these things that, that has to come later. And so this is later. And, you know, I've spent 10 years being a professional. And for the first time in my life, I can say, hey, I can intentionally decide the community I'm I'm going to live, not based on school, not based on my job, just based on quality of life and how I want to have my day to day. So, Cody, exactly what you're talking about, like, who do I know I want to learn from? Who do I want to have movies night with? Who do I want to take a course with? All of the intellectual community uh, resources that can circulate and that can be expanded and people can share in so many more things than just lawnmowers. So people who are wanting to try to figure out how to get into one of these communities, and you mentioned there's a lot of different types. Is it just searching on Facebook, looking for a group? Like how, is there like a website that really specializes in connecting people? Like what's the best way for people to start looking for these places? Yeah, you can go to cohousing.org. That's really simple, isn't it? Cohousing.org. That's it. 
that's where everybody put all of their information about their community on there. There's a section called classified. So if you're really thinking, hey, I'm ready in the next few months, few years or whatever to move somewhere, you can look at the classified. That's where most communities put their vacancies. And then also new communities can say, hey, we have possibilities of, of building a new community. You can come and check it us out. In terms of our community, I can give you a link to us if people want to come and check us out and have a conversation with us. It's a long process. This is not like you get a realtor and you go and you see a house and you like it and you buy it. It's not like that at all. It's about like you go, you meet people and then you go again and you meet some more people and you go again and you meet some more people. Then you have vacations with them. Then you have Zoom with them. Then you have some like sessions with them. And then you decide, oh, do I want to live with these people, like close to these people? Do I want these people to be like my neighbors? So it's like the reverse. It's like you meet the neighbors, then you buy the house, not the other way around. Well, we'll definitely link that up in the show notes for anyone who is interested in living in this awesome co-housing community up in the Pacific Northwest. But people who want to connect with you, Lauren, learn more about you, where is the best place for them to do that? They can reach out to me. I can give you my email as well. and They can just reach out to me directly, but they can listen to our podcast. We have some a podcast called In Love and Money, and it's about relationships and money, which is something totally different. But yeah, they can feel, feel free to reach out to me about really anything. I think that's the one thing that's really great about the FI community is honestly, I have not met anyone I do not like. And so if you reach out to me, I'm pretty sure I will like you. So yeah, feel free to have questions about co-housing or anything else. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.